Welcome to Linux Journal's Reality 2.0 podcast. This is episode six. I am Catherine Druckmann talking to Doc Searles, editor-in-chief of Linux Journal. So, Doc, hey <laughs> you were at a pretty interesting conference over the weekend, Freenode Live in Bristol, England. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, tell Bristol me. here in the UK, which is where I still am. I'm at an Airbnb in London for my last night here before I... I head back to the states, and I'm looking at my calendar here. Is this, you know, there was there was more coming ahead of even Freenode. Uh, no, no, it doesn't matter. I just uh, it's it's actually I, I was at a a business call on a company in London that uh, I consult, and um, a similar thing going on went on there. A couple of similar things, um, but the main thing at 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 Freenode is that. It's like the one thing that brought everybody together was the was Freenode and IRC, but mostly it was like a really eclectic collection of of nerds that were kind of I at least from my perspective were in many different disciplines. You know, I think they, you know, they're. It's funny because in in the old days there would be. Like in the O'Reilly threads, you know, there'd be a Perl conference and a Python conference and a Ruby conference and a, you know, a Red Hat one or a, you know, a KDE one or some something else. And there are a lot of breakouts. This was a um, a one-track conference, so there were lots of speakers from that were speaking to, you know, a, a bunch of different audiences at once and trying to uh, draw a um, Pull a pull a string through all the pearls, you might say, and I thought in many ways, though. I mean, I, there were, I mean, I was I was very focused on the conversation that I had with um, on stage with uh, with Simon Phipps of the uh, Open Source Initiative, um, who was far more inveterate than I am in 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 the in the whole open source thing. He's a a just a deep and and wide source of wisdom and experience on the history of the open source movement and the free software movement before that and uh and he and i that, that's really what i was thinking mostly about that he and i the night before um you know over wonderful drinks <laughs> in, in his hotel <laughs> uh and some great food too i might say the bristol was his hotel and the food there was quite good uh, uh we you know, I kind of wished we'd recorded that evening because it was we just went so broadly across so many things. But you know, the the most of an hour that we had on stage was mostly his, and I, I gave a brief talk about privacy up front, um, and uh, translated it to the English, so I called it privacy. <laughs> and, uh, I noticed. Uh, I, I did watch it. Yeah, yeah, um, but. But that really was was a, a minor thing. I, I I think it was really important for me to have him um, hold forth on what he knew. That I just advise people to. I think it's on on YouTube. We can put up a link, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it was broadcast or webcast live. I think at the time, one of the one of the in the morning, the first morning, there were like thirty nine people watching, and it. Uh, I tweeted something about it. It went up to 41, which which shows you <laughs> wow. my pull with my 
you know, you have 24,000 followers and a couple <laughs> click on your link, you know, not that everybody's following because mostly they don't. It's just a fire hose. Uh, but it was that was that was interesting to just to get the that background. But I thought in many ways, Kyle Rankin's talk, Kyle, our colleague here at Linux Journal, uh, gave his own personal history. I, I would have d- divided the history of open source into like two periods, you know, uh, before the 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 promulgation of the term open source as a as a meme as a thing, and starting in 1998 and afterwards, and also at that same almost about the same dividing line, really 99 2000 was the run up to the crash, the dot com crash, uh, and after that crash, that's how I would have divided it. And Kyle. Kyle chopped it into about four or five segments and and went over something that uh, Bradley Kuhn of the um, of the Free Software uh, Foundation um, kind of brought home later in his closing keynote. Very similar theme. Uh, in both cases, they spoke to what has become of open source and free software of the whole of FOSS code base which is that it's everywhere it's now in everything um and the developers most of the development happens on top of that um something i didn't even know that uh, that kyle brought up was that a lot of people developing linux are doing it on macs and pcs and doing it in a virtual machine uh and i I didn't realize that and that um and they were doing it mostly because they needed to work on that substrate that Linux and open source in general are deep inside of things that are stacks of proprietary hardware, even containers, um, a similar thing. You've got um, this this block of of code on top of which all kinds of closed source and proprietary stuff uh, is written and run and the developers of that are a lot like what I noticed that in a piece I wrote back in the early aughts called a tale of a tale of three cultures at that time I I saw the sort of cause based um, Linux and open source developers as one group and I went to an embedded conference and that was a completely different mindset uh, embedded Linux was just practical Linux is that we're we're using it's like building with two by fours you know then but and there was no moral imperative. There was no sense of what what the importance was of the open source movement and what it stood for and why it mattered so much to everything that ran on top of it. And that the value system behind it was also kind of lost. Back then, I saw it just with Embedded. But according to both Kyle and, um, uh, and Brad, uh, it... We're at a state now where a lot of the developers just have no idea why Linux and open source are as important or got to be as important as they were and why they still are. And that why opening your code and sharing your code and building for the world and not just for yourself also allows you to make more money and make the world bigger and better. But they don't know that. They don't see it. And Kyle had wonderful advice for both the old folks that 
we're from the old crowd and the new folks that are with the new crowd and the different kind of crowds within the crowds. I thought it was a very sensitive and, and thoughtful uh, presentation, whereas um, uh, Bradley Kuhn has, you know, mostly made the point that we've forgotten what this stuff is all about. And it's really important to use Linux, you know, for yourself and to even yeah. like he pointed out, he's using an ancient laptop because the newer the newer ones he doesn't like. I don't know if Kyle told him about purism or not or whether he knew <laughs> well, about I hope so, it, yeah. it didn't come up. But um, yeah, but that was well, that to me was the highlight. Really. Mm, that is interesting. I mean, I think about think about the market uh, saturation of something like WordPress. You know, it's it's an open source web mm. platform. But think of how many people, think of the, the long tail of WordPress, so to speak, how many people that touches ultimately. And think of pr likely how few of them have any real concept of, 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 of open source ideology. I mean, it's probably irrelevant to the vast majority of people. Oh, who it is. WordPress. And, and, it, and it's, there's nothing wrong with it being irrelevant to users i think it, it, it but it is it's very it should be very very relevant to the to the developers that that there there is a choice in many cases to to open or source or, or close the code but it um and there's a lot there are a lot of people on github right and there are a lot of things on yeah. github but i think both of them i, I kind of it kind of blurs in my mind at this point you know visited how easy it is to even use github and not fully get that it's based on Git and Git, you know, you can still use Git. You can still right. use, you know, other, you know, versioning systems without, without, without relying on GitHub alone. Um, and, you know, and for that matter, how, how Git came to be that, you know, one problem with Linux was that in the early days, uh, we relied on BitKeeper, which is a, a, a proprietary uh, platform. And, because as Linus put it at the time, there really wasn't any other alternative. But when when he got shaken down to, you know, for payments for that, he just he went out and wrote Git for himself and for everybody else. And look what it did. I mean, it 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 enlarged the world enormously. Uh, and and it's just that, you know, the it's kind of like it, I'm trying to think of a metaphor, but probably the best is 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 goose that lays golden eggs versus golden eggs. And. Mm -hmm. You know, the open source and free software before it and as a breed of it um, is the goose that lays the golden eggs. And do, and you can make a goose that lays golden eggs. You can do that. That, you know, Linus did that with Git and he did it before that with Linux. And why not make a goose that lays golden eggs rather than just trying to make a golden egg? And but it's so hard to explain that. And it's. Yeah. And, and I think. Are something interesting actually that's related to what you're saying that that kyle mentioned about sort of the evolution of the culture um is that something in a conversation in your conversation with simon that he brought up he talked a lot about licensing and, and some recent controversy um i don't know anyone listening should, should definitely go check out an article on linux journal that came out uh i think it was it would be november 5th by glenn moody and he talks about mm. this issue and, and i think it's relevant to your goose that laid the golden egg thing so you lay this great golden egg and then and then aws uses your golden egg because they can and it's it's free and open source and then um, perhaps the person who created the golden egg wants to 
mess about with the the licensing and and then you have these mm-hmm. sort of unknown issues that are coming up there that um i think one of the interesting things simon says is you don't necessarily know the consequences of it yet and i think this is right, a very right. interesting conversation right now that's it's 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 all related it's related to culture shifts it was you know these are developers these are hardcore nerds that are writing this stuff and they're going hey wait a second maybe i haven't bought completely into the open source philosophy and they're they're starting to change it and i think that's i don't know i think that's a really important conversation right now I think one of the things that that Simon brought up in that uh, in that conversation we had on stage was that in some ways there isn't a right answer within the open source world. Like he contrasted the East Coast and West Coast approaches. The East Coast approach being uh, the GPL, right? You know, and and um, and everything it makes possible, including Linux. I mean that it wasn't um, a uh, an ins- inconsequential thing. It was a very consequential thing that Linus chose the GPL, now referred to as GPL v2, um, at the time. And it wasn't that it was viral. It's that it really brought a coherence to all the development that followed. It didn't, It you know, it, it forked at the as it should at the at the distrib- at the distribution level, but not at the kernel level. And and the whole notion that the freedoms that are embedded in in a code base should pass to others that use it is 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 kind of a communitarian thing. It's you know Richard Stallman talked about caring about your neighbor. That was the term he used in the in the the, the free software manifesto. I guess it was called. I'm not looking at it right now, but but that's that was his point. And on the West Coast with the development of the of the of the Berkeley uh, Unix and with that uh, Bill Joy and others worked on, uh, and the BSD license that that are much more permissive. And even though the MIT license is permissive, um, it's really the Apache license. On it's also a West Coast thing, and it's more like everybody's on their own. Everybody can do their own. It's much more libertarian in that sense. Although there are libertarians, um, including Eric Raymond himself, as a big proselytizer in the early days. Of, of open source and Linux, uh, who would say the GPL is probably the better license if you want um, coherence in in the uh, in, in the promulgation of it. But but it I think we're Simon is pretty clear. I thought at least that it's not that one's right and one's wrong. It's just that they're coming from different cultures and 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 it's important to understand that. It's important to like pay attention to the licensing and and um, I don't know how many times I've talked with developers and they said oh yeah we chose apache or or you know the bsd or mit license because it's it's permissive it, it makes it possible for it to to spread even more but um they don't want to you know create any problems for any developers downstream and it's true that there there are cases where the gp you know gpl code can't be used for one reason or another and so there, there are arguments on both sides but but my my own prejudice is toward the discipline, uh, it, I'm an East Coast guy, I guess, I was born on the East Coast. I spent too much time in Boston, too, maybe. But but that that was interesting stuff. And, I, and that's another reason why I advise uh, listening to that talk. Yeah, absolutely. I, I watched um, actually earlier today. <laughs> and it was, yeah, yeah it was you can watch it and listen to it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of like 
you know, people, one of the primary ways that people listen to music is by, is on YouTube. <laughs> there are videos on YouTube, you know, which they just listen to, apparently. Right, true. I, yeah. I, I tend not to myself, but it's... Watching optional, listening mandatory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what what else, what was the sort of, what was your big takeaway from, from the event? I mean, is there anything in particular that you're, mm-hmm. that you're really excited about or... Um, I well, I, several things. One is I'm, I, you know, the, the community is alive and very alive and very well. Um, I really like just to sort of plug our own larger organization that we're part of London Trust Media, and there were other, um, other, you know, properties there that uh, private internet access, which I was using earlier today uh, um, to, so I could read things in the U.S. from from Europe where the GDPR, GDPR um, has, you know, that the crappy American companies don't want to adhere to the GDPR. <laughs> oh, okay. So, so there was, there are other reasons too, but, but, but nonetheless, it was, it was great. Also meeting with some of those people and having great conversations and, um, and there were people not necessarily in Ecobal, like, like the, the KDE people were there and a bunch of others. It was, there it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's basically the, the whole thing was held in what amounted to a big theater kind of uh it was kind of theater seating but with a very steep um slope it was kind of a giant seminar room kind of thing um but it was, it was basically theater seating but right outside were the booths which are basically just tables um but with lots of swag too more swag than i've seen in a long time whole you know, umbrellas really good umbrellas <laughs> you know nice. from the that's, a, that's an food. indicator of something, I think. It was an indicator of something, I think. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, um, and and that was nice, you know. And and you know, we'd have lunch together and stuff like that. But it was a, it was a nice part of uh, near downtown Bristol, with an old part of the city where the docks were and the ports. Um, and uh, you know, and you could wander around. And the, the club scene at night was very huge. There's lots of giant restaurants where people could go clubbing at night and you know hang out and drink beer and uh but it was you know it was a fun place to be and we had a good time and, and the location was also inside uh, you know this um you know one of those science museums you know very interactive science museums our part was in the in the uh aquarium with lots of kids running around and you know it's a, it a great location and uh and to have the you know the booths right outside was cool. I think in the future it'd be great if we had breakouts, um, and and you know went it's different. Where the valuable with... conversations happen, really. Well, sometimes you know, but but there was something to be said for having everybody in one room too. I mean, I I mean that 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 Kyle and Simon and I and the other speakers and and um, uh, and uh, and and Brad. Bradley could, you know, speak to people across cultures there. I mean, because there, there were, you know, every code base and every obsession people could have about it are, are in some ways different cultures. And it was great to, to speak across those. And, and, and for people like, well, like, I think most of the speakers um, were uh, generalists, you might say, of a sort. And I noticed that a couple of speakers, there was one in particular, I forget what he worked on, and I don't know why he singled me out. He came up to the back and said, you know, there were no questions after my thing. Why, why was that? And and I think 
partly is because most people didn't know what the hell he was talking about. And because and it was out of their square, their sphere of interest, a few, maybe a third of the audience were interested in what he had to say. And the other two thirds weren't. So it, it, you know, so it was kind of good to have people speaking at a somewhat higher level or a broader, deeper level about the big issues, uh, you know, in the history and things like that. That was, that was good. You know, that was good. So, you know, on, on the whole, I, you know, call it a success actually there was actually not that much talk about irc and and about free note itself there i thought then that was interesting as well uh but i think it would, you know the fact that it brought in you know that was mentioned a great deal is you know that a lot of people collaborate over free node and that's kind of cool um but the but i i was impressed at how the the generalists had a chance to talk across a number of developer cultures that was kind of cool that's cool. Yeah, I think, you know, Freenode is, an, is a significant tool for communication, and a lot of people have used it, you know, to work on these projects for, for years. I mean, yeah, one, one of the sort of tragic things that I saw, somebody had it in their history, and I don't know who it was. Um, it may have been Bradley, but I'm not sure, uh, about how we almost had coherence in chat when Google and later Facebook used XMPP, the original Jabber protocol uh, for chat. Like apparently I didn't know that Facebook Messenger was built on 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 XMPP at, at one point and then they got off it and that would have made it compatible, you know, but they decided to lock it down by using their own proprietary thing. And and Google did the same thing. And in a similar way earlier, they they kind of hurt RSS a lot by for supporting Adam and then getting rid of their their uh, RSS reader, um, uh, Google Reader, like they're now killing off Google Plus. But at least Google Reader was, I mean, it was based on, you know, a, you know, the, an open, I'm not sure, actually it's not even open at, at RSS. It was basically, it's a simple XML thing, but that Dave Weiner ended up giving to the Berkman Center where I hang out. Um, just to kind of stabilize it because it was he wanted it to kind of be declared done, but the um, but Google still you know heard it and they heard it for entirely selfish reasons, and having that laid out as well was was important because you see you could see what some of the lost opportunities are you know that there are now many many dozens of proprietary enclosed messaging and chat applications. Um, and even, we're even talking on on when it's not a chat, but I mean, there's no coherence. We're talking no. on Skype, and it's not. Skype is, you know, probably uses a, a proprietary codec. It's a closed system. All of the all of the conferencing systems are closed. I don't think there's a single open one that I can name. Um, I mean, I I I, I, don't, I wouldn't know how to do it. Maybe somebody does. I mean, and I feel kind of stupid saying I don't know one because I'm sure some listeners will say, wait a minute, you idiot. There, there's this. <laughs> but, but the thing is, there's every time well, you're going to do what we're doing, you know, somebody says, oh, we're using Zoom or we're using, you yeah. know, free conference call or we're using uh, Skype and all of them are closed. Uh, we'll we'll think of that open one about five minutes after we stop recording. <laughs> I probably will, but I mean, I, I suppose that, you know, we're recording this in, in a, even if there's a proprietary codec carrying our voices, at, you're probably recording it in some, you're going to end up putting it in AUG. So 
you know, and and in other formats that are, I guess, I don't even know, I'm guessing it's out, but the, um, and that's cool. I mean, so it's not like it's so closed that you have to publish only inside a Microsoft platform or something like that, or it'll only appear on YouTube or some other place. I mean, it's going to be open in that sense, but it's still, you know, I mean, we should have, this should be open all the way through. And the world would be a much better place right now if there a common open standard for doing for doing chat slash messaging and for doing con- conferencing like we're doing now, especially with video. There's not a you can record it off in MPEG four or something like that, but but the but the systems for doing it are all closed. I think open communication protocols and platforms are a kind of an interesting subject all to themselves. I, I, you know, we have heard a little word on the street that that this is a problem being addressed. So I look forward to, oh, really? oh, that's good. to yeah. seeing some of that come to fruition, especially so we can use it. For yeah. Yeah. My, my, my phone just binged at me I, for, because this isn't running live. It's interesting though. We won't get into it. Or we could have had, if you want to, that today is election day. And, um, uh, where I am, you know, it's eight eight thirty one PM at the moment where I am in, in London, but I'm, with seven hours ahead of you, and, and I think the polls don't even close in the U.S. yet. So no, we have hours to go. Happens. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna know in the morning what went down. You know, yeah. that's what's gonna happen with me when I'm when I'm busy running around and traveling and going out to the airport. So I won't know until until then. So do you find when you go to these conferences, like like I do, that you have the most the most interesting conversations are inevitably the ones over lunch or in the hallway or <laughs> like you learn a lot from going to the sessions and, and you can get inspired by, by some really good talks, but, but you'll, you'll have this great experience one-on-one where you'll suddenly shift maybe a little bit what you were working on or, or incorporate something new. Did you have any of those moments where you feel like, Oh, I just got this oh, yeah, valuable like I, thing. I, I, and, well, like you said that, you know, the, the, the conversation I had the night before with Simon was, much bigger and broader and deeper and longer than what we had on stage. Uh, though what we had on stage was very good. I really wish we could have recorded that one the night before. In fact, I got, I bought recording equipment with me and I really wish I'd set it up there, but I was in a different hotel. I actually bought, <laughs> I bought microphones with XLR connectors to hook up to my Tascam, you know, recorder that I could record in 44.1 MP3 and, and, and you know MPEG and all kinds of crap, and I and I didn't bring it with, I didn't bring it over there, and I kind of really regret that. Well, I uh, think isn't that always the way? I mean, even I, I think this this podcast has been a learning experience. You know, starting this. Yeah. Uh, and we we keep having these really great conversations either before we've started recording or after we've just right. stopped That's recording. Such a run, you know, but, but the but here's here's the here's the thing. I, I, we Noticing that way back, uh, you know, is one of the reasons that we, we being Kalia Hamlin, Phil Windley, and myself started IIW, the Inter- Internet Identity Workshop. And we had that a uh, couple, just a couple of weeks ago uh, in, in the Bay Area. And we had our 27th of those. I think it's by far the most leveraged of all of the unconferences. But the whole, the whole idea behind an unconference is it's all hallway. There are no, speakers there are no keynotes there are no um there 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 are no even the sponsors only buy food there a problem with many many conferences is that the sponsors 
demand that they, you know, have one of their people speak on stage. And um, and that is just a hugely leveraged conference. And and I'm, you know, and that's and it's all because if you look up, they call it open open space. It's like the open source of conferences, open space. Uh, a guy named Harrison, a guy named Harrison Owen invented it back in like 1980 something, I think. Um, and I mean, it's not a complicated thing. I mean, you just, everybody gets together in the morning. They all, you know, anybody who feels like it says, I'm going to talk about such and such. And, uh, and it's all breakouts. And then they put the results on a wiki and just all kinds of stuff comes out of that. OWATH came out of it. UMA, my own project, VRM, um, all kinds of identity stuff. It doesn't have to be about identity. And I don't mean to plug it. I mean, I don't really need to plug it because we maxed out at close to 300 people on this last one. We're basically sold out. Um, and that happens pretty much every time. Uh, but it's a very, very effective conference. And and I mean, that's why it, it's often strange to me to go to other conferences because they, they you know, that format, I think, is one where good as it can be like I, you know I'm, I'm really glad we were on stage i'm really glad that kyle um and others could you know share what they knew with us um there's you know I, frankly i think the unconference is a better approach well that's yeah I, I you know i miss going to those kind of those that format of conference i, I used to go to quite a few of the unconference type events um but it's been a while, and you know I'm not sure why. But I agree out. with you; they are incredibly Next like, We'll see if we can get. Uh, maybe it'll be a fun thing to have a a Linux journal gathering around that in some way. I mean, it's it's at the Computer History Museum in in Silicon Valley, and uh, uh, it's I, it's just a, a it's always a energizing to come out of that. Um, I don't maybe know if we talked about. The, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, maybe the takeaway from this for, for our listeners is, you know, check check out unconferences, check out conference conferences. I, I feel like conference culture has shifted quite a bit since just in the last, oh, I don't know, 10 years. I feel like the whole approach to gathering, you know, like-minded people in a conference environment has changed. And I, it's hard for me to, to define what I mean by that even. It's just there's a there's a shift in culture. I, I, um, in some cases, like think about the the Linux conferences we used to go to go to back in the day. You know, the big Linux world and and those mm-hmm. kind of things is the things that have gone you know gone away and been maybe sort of replaced ish by a little bit smaller focused, more regional conferences and stuff like that. Well, I think there, um, there are too, I think there are too many conferences at this point. There's a zillion of them. I mean, just a zillion of them. Well, I was fair. talking to a friend in London today who said. Right now, I guarantee somewhere in the world, there are probably 10 blockchain conferences going on. Oh, right well, <laughs> whatever the, the latest uh, money making. Yeah, whatever the latest thing is. is. And, and here in Europe, there are you know, like five GDPR conferences happening right now. And, uh, but it's, 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 almost, it's almost too much. I, it's, it's really, uh, and I don't even think it's a matter of keeping up. It, let me tell you about a completely different thing that um, that happened this last week that just it kind of changed my life a little bit, maybe, um, which is that Smug Mug announced that um, 
they were changing their policy for Flickr, which they bought from uh, the remnants of the late Yahoo. Uh, the Flickr is the, um, the the original and sort of alpha photo site, um, which had an unlimited, essentially unlimited, a terabyte. You could put a terabyte of photos up. Um, I have 70,000 photos and I would like a, two, a 1% of that or I don't know what, but... Um, and there's, there are pro accounts and there and there were, um, uh, you know, just basically free accounts. It was a freemium system. Well, they didn't just kill off. I mean, the the free they they said basically we're only going to let you have a thousand photos, and that's nothing. I mean, it's just nothing. And they, they might as well have just said there's no more free. It's only only that. Linux Journal has over a thousand. Um, if we don't start paying, they're going to knock off. They knock that down to a thousand. I have the, the Berkman Center where I, I, I have contributed probably over a thousand photos of my own has over five thousand. Are they going to pay fifty bucks a year? Are we going to pay fifty bucks a year? I have a I have two accounts. One is one is you know the one where I have seventy thousand photos. I will pay fifty bucks for that. But it's not just storing the photos. It's it's the tagging them. It's the it's the licensing where I can make it very clear that all of them are Creative Commons licensed to be freely used. And and many hundreds of them are, are in Wikipedia because I've made them free. And and so it's a really a great platform for the free stuff to find its way into the world. And what they're doing is just showing me that I'm, I'm not I'm probably going to pay 50 bucks for a year or two and then I'm going to stop. And all of those are going to be killed. And. And it made me think about digital archiving. I was in the process of moving all of my, um, you know, just uh, print photos. I mean, photos that are on paper, old-fashioned photographs, and digitizing them. And I think I'm going to stop. I'm going to leave them in photo albums. I, I'm because I, I suddenly realized that there that the digital world is really temporary. It's really snow on the water. It disappears yeah by by design and and our, our you know the trouble you've had and we've had with we you know we're among the few publications that really care about our archives and really want to make them available and it is really damned hard they it, <laughs> they nobody's making it easy nobody nobody's designing stuff that's that's for the the publisher that wants archives at uh I mean, everything that after the Clue Train Manifesto, which I wrote in 2000 and the book came out in 2000, the, the th three of the authors, maybe all four, had pieces in like Red Herring and uh, um, uh, Fast Company. And um, there was another one I was a big and famous at the time. All of them are gone. Fast Company still exists, but the archives are gone. You can't find them. They're gone. All of IDG's publications, most of them, I think, they're all gone. Uh, and and we've kept ours, but it's hard. And so I've I, it it's kind of changed my life almost. Like I'm thinking, really thinking hard about how to save what I've done in the world that's digital. And I don't know. I don't have an answer because it's labor intensive, whatever it'll be. I think it's you know it's a ball of string. I I don't know that it's diff it's difficult exactly, but 
you know, I mean, as you know, we, we just migrated. We did a major, major migration on our website. We migrated from Drupal 6 to Drupal 8. And, you know, it, I guess the struggle every time you, you have it's such a tremendous amount of content, it, it just makes, it always makes that task a little bit more labor intensive or a little bit more you have to be much more careful you you know there's it's just like it's steering a, a larger boat that's all it is i guess but um yeah. yeah i mean once you you know at some point the ball of string gets gets really really big and hard to move around mm -hmm. but, but uh, well, ultimately yeah, it's I, still string so i guess you know yeah well you know i, I also um uh a friend um did me the kindness of putting up, I mean, basically firing up old software. I mean, this is an old hosting program that Dave Weiner wrote that my old blog was on. And and I'm now redirecting weblogs or weblog.searls.com to that address is now weblog.searls.com. It is my blog from 1999 to 2007. Um, and it's nice that it's back there. I hope the archive, Internet Archive, finds everything that's findable there um, and archives it because it didn't archive the old version, the old one. But there's lots of stuff in there that's not archivable because I don't know where it is and he doesn't know where it is, but it's in there somewhere. The links that go to it are all 404. And that's a lot of stuff that I wrote. <laughs> I don't know if it is it worth trying to find it and save it. That's just an interesting question for me. I have lots of stuff on floppies that are that can only be read by old PCs and Macs. These are way before Linux in the 80s and the early 90s. And they're in machines in my garage. A lot of stuff I wrote for Linux Journal is in a, you know, a Debian Linux machine called Happy <laughs> that that's sitting in my garage and it's a lot of this stuff that i wrote called suit watch is on there and i don't you know yeah and i don't know or not suit watch but it was called maybe it was suit watch suit linux, watch, for suits. Yeah. linux for suits is my column and that was in the print publication and also presumably on the web but the, it was the thing called suit watch was a newsletter and i'm pretty sure most of those are not around but maybe they are i don't know but um but the Maybe there's a the, different ball of string in a different drawer that we could find. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, you know, and you only think of these. I, I, I mean, I have lots of videotapes of our kid growing up that are first recorded on a VHS recorder, then recorded on a, a Hi-8 or another kind of 8. I mean, there are three or four Sony formats for recording video, home video. I've kept the cameras. I don't know how to get the data there off onto digital. I don't know if it's worth trying. Um, but there's not HDMI out on those things. Uh, there's just, you know, probably some proprietary Sony thing. I know Apple's old iMovie would had device drivers that would drive some of those old things but i'm sure that's not in the current mac operating system so they're just sitting in boxes right, right. and that's another thing i don't know what's going to happen with those and uh it's all just you know i mean that's that's almost the biggest thing in my in my head 
from this last week because I I was busy during Freenode Live, sort of busy changing my mind about digital archiving. Like, is it a good idea at all? Sure. That's. I mean, hey, that's a that's that's. I smell a topic for a future podcast. Yeah, <laughs> digital archiving. That, we're at that point. Versus, yeah. yeah. Digital archiving versus digital minimalism. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, or just analog, just leave it in analog. Yeah. Just say, look, here are some here. Here is some media and here are devices for reading that media. Hey, future generations, figure it out. You know, hope they work, you know, and let it go at that. That yeah, sounds that's, good. Maybe, maybe some people listening will have some some good input for you for your digital archiving dilemma. Yeah. Hopefully. I actually, it's an idea I had for companies like, I don't know, it's, you know, the ones that'll take your hard drive that you, you, you know, that no longer works and they'll like completely take it apart and put a new head on it and stuff and then peel off whatever data you, you think you've lost and for a lot of money. And I thought they are the ones maybe that ought to be making money on this that, yeah. you know, give them, give them your old floppies. You know, your five and a quarter inch floppies, your three and a half or whatever, you know, all those, your old hard drives that had, you know, pre-USB um, connectors on them uh, and, you know, and peel off the data and put them on something newer. I, I think a lot of people would spend some money on that. I think there's a business in that. I'm always thinking of what there might be a business in, but that's one of them. It's not, that's not the worst way to think. Sure. So on that note. Yeah, on that note. So thanks. Well, until next time. <laughs> yeah. See you, buddy.